another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today I'm talking to Jennifer Rosner, the author of Once We Were Home, which was just published last week. It's about four children who were stolen from their families during the Holocaust. Jennifer is also the author of The Yellow Bird Sings, which was a National Jewish Book Award finalist and a Massachusetts Book Award honor book. Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on Read More to talk about your work. Thanks so much for having me. Once We Were Home follows four children who were separated from their families during World War II. The book explores what happened to children whose parents took steps to protect them from the Holocaust, either by leaving them with Christian friends or by placing them in Catholic orphanages. It also looks at a Nazi program that took children who were not German, but looked Aryan away from their parents to be raised by German couples. After the war, some of these children were forced to leave the families they had grown to love and count on by those who wanted to keep Jewish children with other Jewish people. Jennifer, the story is just devastating, um, but you write it in such a beautiful way. I really enjoyed reading this book. Uh, In your author's note, you mentioned that you got the idea from interviewing a woman who worked for an operative whose mission was to redeem these Jewish children. Um, What was it about that meeting that sparked your interest into writing this book? Yeah, thank you. So years ago, I had heard of a case where when Jewish children were hidden in, in convents, a rabbi would come by and sing in Yiddish and sometimes a child would like turn her head or his head and kind of recognize that sound and then they would try to you know reclaim those Jewish children and bring them to to Jewish settings sometimes it was a DP camp or an orphanage it was because their family had been killed but um there was sort of this attempt to um, retrieve Jewish children because they had, you know, Jews had been annihilated in the war and there were so few and Jew- the children were the future, etc. And then I met a woman who actually worked as what they called an operative for the redemption of Jewish children. And this was this larger mission by various groups. Um, some were Zionist, some were more religious. Um, there was one guy working alone. There were all these different groups who were working and they felt this moral imperative to try to rebuild the collective of Judaism. And I was I was interested in it on so many levels. First of all, I just didn't know what had happened to hidden children after the war. You know, you always kind of had learned of these stories where they were stowed away for safekeeping, but then if their parents died um, and maybe all their family died, you know, what happened to them? Did they just stay with the family or did they leave? You know, so that was interesting. Um, but also what was interesting was that, you know, this effort to get them back was um, an effort to restore this collective that had been destroyed. But on the individual level, what was the, you know, whether was it going to be best for the child, you know, to be taken from after the first rupture of losing their first family and then putting it being put into a second family, um, you know, then you're being pulled out of that second family when you may have really grown to love them and to have bonds with them. And, and so I was interested in the children's perspective. So the novel is written from the perspective of children um, and as they grow up into adults. And it's all about kind of how they work, how, do, how they grapple with their sense of identity, belonging, the nature of home. And what was interesting, too, is as I read more carefully after I met the one operative, 
I um, started reading about others and reading testimonies and interviews, et cetera. And there were there was a, such a mix of feeling. I mean, some of them, you know, really felt that they were saving Jews, saving children who might be actually not in the best of settings. You know, sometimes they were just farmhands and they weren't really loved. There were different cases. And sometimes it really depended on, you know, what they remembered of their roots and how old they were and all these different things. But the operatives themselves had a real mix of feelings too. Like some felt they were saving and others felt later in retrospect that it was really causing some psychic damage to move those children out. And um, and I was just interested in this range of cases of a history I hadn't even known about after having worked in this area for a long time, I hadn't even known. Well, you mentioned the interviews and, and all of the reading. How much research actually went into this book? Because it seems like to be able to tell the story as well as you did, it's obvious that you did a lot of work before you wrote anything. I did do a lot of research for the novel. Um, you know, there are a few scholars in Israel, especially, and Yad Vashem Press has published these terrific books. And um, a lot of them are about this subject matter, or several of them are. And I ended up being in touch with one of the historians, and she read a draft of my novel, and we went over it almost, you know, like sentence by sentence. And she helped me. Um, she helped me even understand the possible root of the children, especially in the Oscar and Anna storyline, how they're moved from one children's home to another to another, and then finally get on a boat to Palestine. And then that boat is rerouted to Cyprus. And all of this is based on like a single operative's actual route so that I knew I was following, you know, like a real historical um, trajectory for those children. And then in the other cases, which I'm sure we'll talk about the case of Roger, who was in a convent and, um, you know, when he was uh, he was sought out by family members, the church actually took him on the run. And there's this scholar at Brown who worked um, a lot on that particular case. And when these archives like of the um, like the Papal archives finally got opened recently and he was like first in line and saw that in that particular historical case, which the character of Roger is based on. Um, the desire by the church to keep the child in in the church and to not let him go back to these children to go back to their Jewish relatives, um, you know, went all the way up high, high, high up in the papacy. Well, you have really created some very memorable characters in this novel. Um, as we've already mentioned, you know, there's Oscar and Anna who are raised by a Christian couple in Poland at the request of their mother who was confined to the Polish ghetto. And Roger is being raised by, uh, he's being raised by their nuns, their priests, you know, he's uh, uh, baptized. Uh, and, you know, he was left at the church at a very young age. So he doesn't remember his parents. Uh, and as you mentioned, he's later hidden when the church decides he's better off with them than with his uh, surviving Jewish relatives. And then there is Renata and, archaeologist who's working in Israel long after the war has ended, but she has a lot of questions about her identity and why her mother refused to discuss their life in Germany before they moved to the UK. And, you know, these stories are based on true stories, as you mentioned, and um, I was wondering if there was one character or one story that was just Particularly close, particularly close to you as you were writing, and you felt like 
maybe that was the person who sort of drew you in because you already had the idea to do this book and then you did more and more research and discovered more and more stories of stolen children. And I'm just wondering, not to say is there a favorite character, but there's just one that feels closer. Yeah. I mean, I began writing the Oscar and Anna storyline first and they weren't even separated at first. Now they're now there's four distinct storylines, um, but I had Oscar and Anna as one single line that was interesting as a novelist. Um, it was probably good that I separated them and they both really blossomed when they were separated because I got to really dig into their characterization more. Um, I think that was the case that really started this whole thing and I felt very, you know, connected to, you know, the, the child point of view in, in both of those cases. Um, but then Roger um, is a philosopher and I am a philosopher. And so I got very close to him as well. And then, you know, it's interesting with each character, you know, the, the particular trajectory usually does um, reflect, um, I don't know, something close to the author because that's what drives you on, you know, each day. So her explorations, I mean, we meet her at an older age. She's 28 when the novel begins and she stays that age as all the other children catch up. And, um, her explorations are more mature and she's digging, you know, digging into the past, only not her own past, etc. So, um, yeah, I was happy to hear a reader say my favorite character was whichever one I was reading at the time. And that made me feel good because with with woven novels, you always do worry, you know, that you're you want to like flip around to get to the one <laughs> you care about. But if you, you know, hopefully they're all compelling. Actually, that was going to be my next question about, you know, when you do write a novel that's like this and you're jumping around in time and you're jumping around from character to character, um, what advantages do you see as a writer to this format versus a linear storytelling format? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think that it's like what an architect says that um, you can only from within the house decide where the windows should go, you know, <laughs> and um, and so each novel kind of tells you what structure it needs. And I think that has to do with, you know, can I express this point of view, you know, or or capture this kind of thematic um you know, content from from a linear way or from a, you know, a woven way or from various points of view or for single points of view. I feel like this is an ambitious novel. It's kind of complex in its structure. Um, I always look at um, Year of Wonders by Geraldine Brooks. It's such a simply gorgeous and elegant novel. It's like from one point of view for one year. I'm so envious of that concept, you know, like, <laughs> like I wish I could write something that had this kind of confined and singular point of view. And she's so talented that she manages to get you to know like everyone in the in the village, you know, she, she did it. Um, but in this case, I felt like, you know, the points of view, especially when you work from the point of view of children, they, they are limited points of view in certain ways. They only know what they can know. And there's a lot of other stuff going on. And it helped me to have, you know, a sibling pair with different points of view because of different, I get to represent that at a different age, this experience would be different, that with different memories, it would be different um etc and so I think it just had to be built this way for what I was trying to do to show the complexity and to show the vastness of this 
situation, which is that children have been stolen, not just during and after World War II, but children are being stolen, you know, by Russian soldiers, Ukrainian children are being stolen, there are children, you know, there are court cases of children who are in white families, but their Native American tribe wants them back there. Are, I mean, there are just so many cases and they keep coming along. And um, the idea that children are moved around based on adult conceptions of where they belong and who they should be, etc., you know, are not just, I mean, really important for us to be thinking about. I just wanted to say that, like, I have a really personal connection to this whole concept because um, I'm the, my, my husband and I are hearing parents of deaf children. And when we first were deciding sort of what pathway to take with our children, how to communicate, would we use spoken language with technology, would we sign, etc. Um, I actually heard from somewhat of a radical person, but still it wasn't, you know, the only person who mentioned this, that, that, you know, hearing parents shouldn't raise deaf children, that deaf children should be raised by the deaf. The idea that, you know, my daughters who didn't grow cilia in their ear, that would, you know, <laughs> stimulate their auditory nerve is the reason my children should be taken, you know, and raised by someone else is so crazy to me. And in a way, I think that all these movements of children there's not so much stopping and saying, well, what are the connections and intimacies and bonds? Where where does that child feel at home and feel they're in a family and feel they're loved? I mean, you know, there's all these kind of, yeah, intellectual conceptions about whether you're Jewish, whether you're Christian, whether you're hearing, whether you're deaf, whether you're German, whether you're Polish. I mean, and meanwhile, you know, we're just, I just wanted to get inside those children. Well, I definitely want to ask you about that, about the whole the idea of, uh, belonging and you know, who am I, you know, am I Jewish if I was raised by Christians or, um, and, you know, we see characters grappling with this throughout the novel, uh, particularly as they get older and they start thinking about these issues. And I was just wondering, you know, you, you touched on this a little bit, perhaps with your children, but what was it about this topic that drew you to it as a writer? Because we see it so much in this novel, uh, you know, with their identity in terms of, you know, what, what does it mean to be Jewish and, uh, or, you know, what does it mean to be Polish, as you mentioned? Uh, what is it about that, that, that searching for identity and belonging that really drew you in uh, when you were writing these stories? Yeah, I think that probably like the deeper psychological driver had to do with our own family and the ways our daughter's continue on and on to ponder their sense of identity as deaf people in a hearing world as sort of not really hearing and not really deaf because they have technology and they speak but then they take off their sound systems and they can't hear but they're really too they're not deaf enough for the deaf world and they're still not really hearing people either and so they're in that middle place or no man's land or something. But I think a lot of us, all of us, maybe in some ways are constantly trying to figure out or over time wondering where we belong and who we are. And um, it's just a profound human question, I think. And, you know, I think that for children, especially who are, you know, raised in in one setting and then moved to another setting and they are trying to kind of come along and they're just not sure. And I think the issues of faith are there and the issues of, you know, 
I think Roger sometimes says like, you know, <laughs> who does a soul belong to? Or what if I, you know, was raised believing in this God and now I have this other God I'm supposed to believe in, or maybe I don't believe in any God. And, you know, what does that say? And, and I think that, um, those children who were stolen, I mean, are, they, they acutely felt this way. And I, I think about children, you know, who are, you know, they were taken at the border or separated from their parents and all of a sudden they're in this new setting. I don't know, you know, we don't know which different settings they're in, but surely all the systems that were in place in their family are now <laughs> gone and they're in a whole nother system and they're trying to kind of reconstitute themselves. I think this novel really is about like how we reroute after ruptures and um and you know how we go on to create connections after after those kind of breakages that we've experienced well there is a character in the book who is deaf and it's just a beautiful character not um we don't explore his story as in-depth as we do the four children but he's also someone who's family is not around he it and he interacts and he becomes very good friends with Oscar um when you were writing him and one thing I thought was really interesting is how he was so readily accepted and this is you know in the years immediately after World War II uh, when ideas about people who have disabilities were not as um enlightened as they are now but he was accepted and the kids learn how to sign so they can communicate with him did you draw on your experiences with your daughters to write this character or did you uh, do that along with uh, your research into how a person who was deaf would have been treated at this time? I did look into how a child coming to a kibbutz especially would be treated. And I found, you know, hearteningly that children with you know, special challenges were treated very, very well. I think other children weren't treated so well. Like if you came from a concentration camp to the kibbutz, um, sometimes you were treated, you know, as if you weren't brave and didn't fight back and you have a your European accent and you're not a, you know, native Israeli. I mean, there were a lot of prejudices and, and um, problems <laughs> socially on the kibbutz, but for whatever reason, it seems as if people with, you know, physical and or, you know, other challenges like this um, were actually really taken with a lot of kindness and care to give them everything they could, you might need. So that was really interesting to me and it, it made me happy because um, there are so many points in history, especially for deaf people, but for all people with any sort of challenges and during Nazi Germany, especially, I mean, they were the first to be taken to the gas chamber. They were experimented on. There was all this stuff happening I mean, really terrible. And, and no one had it easy, but the disabled people, if that's the word um, that was used of the day, you know, it was terrible. And um, so at least in the kibbutz, it seemed like there was some acceptance. And the character, Ava, who first helps get a sign teacher, um, you know, is is probably, a you know, a relatively evolved and, you know, she had a she had a um, background, you know, th that that may have allowed for that. So I think it, you know, it, it was always individual and, you know, circumstantial and specific, but um, that is kind of, it was based on interviewing people in kibbutzim and trying to make sure that it would be historically reasonable. Well, we've talked about this book being about belonging and, and trying to figure out where you fit in and, and where is home. 
Um, but to me, as I was reading, I felt like the book was also a lot about parents' love and sacrifice um, under just the worst circumstances imaginable. Um, but we don't get to hear from most of the parents. Uh, the focus is definitely on the children. Why is it that you wanted to put the spotlight on the children instead of you know, letting us hear more from their parents? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. I mean, well, for one thing, I already had four points of view. No, <laughs> um, because I was tempted to give you Ava's perspective directly from her too, but I was like, I don't know. And then even the, you know, the kind of foster parents, I mean, it would be interesting to hear from all of them, honestly, and to be in their heads and kind of seeing this story go. Um, my first novel, The Yellow Bird Sings, is from the perspective of a mother and a daughter who are in hiding during World War II. And I do feel that, you know, in that particular novel, I very much inhabit a mom's point of view and the need for her to have to give away her child for safety. And um, and in this one, I just thought, you know, because adults move children, I wanted it to be from the child's point of view. Like, I feel, I felt like that was a really important perspective to capture. And, you know, the parents were doing so much for their children's safety. And actually all these different people who were trying to move around children from their perspective, they were being righteous. We may not agree with their, their movements, you know, um, I mean, in, in particular, the, the Nazi movement to get Polish children to be Germanized. But if you really bought it, hook, line, and sinker, you thought it would be better for those children to be German. And so, um, you know, and I wanted to say something really important. There's no like moral equivalencies made between these cases. It's not as if the reclaiming of Jewish children is anything like the, you know, Germanizing of children, you know, um, these things are completely different. And so it was a bit tricky as I was weaving these stories together. It was really character driven. You know, these are these humans who are moving about and who end up interfacing in different ways and, you know, how their lives go. And, um, and so I just wanted it to be really clear that I wasn't um, trying to act like all these cases are alike. They were very, very different. But if you're a child and you're just being moved around, maybe it's not, you know, it's not so different from the child's perspective, but from the kind of overarching question about the morality of each thing, it's very different. Earlier in our talk, you mentioned about um, the fact that you are a philosopher and you have a PhD and you have you know, that in common with one of your characters who's also a philosopher. How does your being a philosopher influence your writing? I've asked myself that a lot. I think I end up being really interested in certain concepts. So, you know, in the Yellow Bird Sings, I think it wasn't just about this mother and child. I mean, it was the nature of hiddenness and what that means. And in this novel, um, you know, really it is a question of, you know, personal identity and identity over time and over change. And I have Roger, you know, looking at these sort of very traditional cases of like the ship of Theseus, you know, and whether if you take it apart and then, you know, rebuild it, is it the same ship, et cetera. And, um, or if you replace one plank at a time, is it the same ship and all these different questions. And, um, you know, I think it, it drives me to keep my eye on like overarching or larger questions and 
it's funny because that's one big influence, I guess, in my writing. And the other was, you know, we mentioned that I'm the mom of deaf children. And when they were little and we were training them, um, you know, to hear with technology, we would pay attention to so many sounds in the environment that most everyone blocks out. So like, you know, you run the sink and hear the water through the faucet and say, I hear it, or the sizzling of the egg, I hear it, or whatever, every little thing you want to mention and like take notice because now our children, you know, they, they have hearing technology, but it's just that they're such good listeners <laughs> that, that it works so well. Yeah. And I think that also was something very profoundly shaping of my writing as a novelist, because my, attention to sensory detail, you know, was trained in this particular way to, to really notice every sound, every, you know, like look at how the hay moves and whether it, you know, whatever. And, and, um, and so those two things together, I feel like have really played a role in how I work and how I write. Okay. Well, Jennifer, I'd like to sort of switch gears now and talk about what you like to read. And I always start off by asking writers about what I call their go-to books. So I don't know if you have any of these, but a lot of times I find that people, especially writers, will have books that they return to again and again. Um, even if you don't read it from cover to cover, you just still pick it up and you may read a couple of pages. Uh, and it's just something about it that you're drawn to and you can't, you know, you find yourself not being able to stop doing that. Do you have any books that would fit in that category? I do. Um, I go over again and again to all the light we cannot see. I just love Anthony Doerr's sentences. I think he's an incredible writer. Um, I also loved um, the song of Achilles and have kind of returned to that several times. And that's Mad Madeline Miller. And um, I also really like to go to this book called Deaf Republic by Ilya Kaminsky, which is a book of poetry, and it's a beautiful book, and his writing's incredible, and yeah, those are probably, at this point right now, my go-tos, I used to have a different little set of go-tos, I remember going off into Everything is Illuminated by Jonathan Safran Foer, I think it was called, and um, The History of Love by Nicole Krauss. And I don't know, it's funny as you change and grow or depending on what you're working on, what kind of brings you back to their book and to flip around and uh, like flip through the pages and see what kind of speaks to you. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned a book of poetry because so many people talk about uh, the lyricism in your work and that it, it's very much like poetry. And it made me wonder, is that something you have studied or is that just the, you know, sort of your style? I've, I've, I haven't studied poetry. I don't think I could write a poem under any set of duress you could create. <laughs> Um, but I love reading poetry and I actually want to mention Jericho Brown too, because I just love him so much and think he's incredible. I've gotten to hear him read um, in person a few times and also just, I love reading his work. I think it's so powerful and incredible. So yes, I, I am really drawn to, to reading poetry and it's, and especially when, um, when I'm stressed out, I just, <laughs> I just want that beautiful lyrical imagistic writing to kind of flow over me. Well, Jennifer, let's talk now about sort of books on the flip side of this, books that maybe you didn't enjoy so much. I, I'm really interested in uh, knowing if there's a, a book that 
maybe every was very popular with seemingly everyone else, but you really struggled with it and either you couldn't get through it or you got through it and then you didn't understand kind of what everyone else was seeing in it. Okay. And I know this is a <laughs> tough question. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, it's always hard to say those things out loud because you don't want to call out another fellow author who's probably working so hard on, on, uh, you know, on their work. And I mean, what I can say is there's a book I read recently that I think is a excellent, you know, really well-written book, but it made me mad and it's stimulated my next piece of work. So maybe I can, I think that's okay. <laughs> um, because it isn't that it wasn't a good book, but it it's, um, it, the book is True Biz by Sarah Novick. And it is a very popular book. It was a Reese pick. It's on, you know, every bookstore shelf. And um, it's about, uh, it's about a, about deaf characters in a boarding school. And I think what, what, bothered me a lot. I mean, we all have to make decisions as writers about how to frame our stories and, and develop our characters. And inevitably, you know, we're throwing it if it's a political conversation, it, we're throwing it one way or another. But there's, you know, the politics of deafness are so fraught. And I think one thing she was trying to do in the novel, you know, is to explain the real loss and sadness of the closing of sign language boarding schools, um, you know, for the deaf. But um, but the one character with cochlear implants, it's like they're leaking in her head. She can't function and speak well, and her parents are this and that. And and it's like, you know, my kids are cochlear, you know, cochlear implant kids. Nothing's leaking in their head. I'd love our deaf conversations to not be thrown in one direction or another. Like we can all make our choices for our kids. We can all um, you know, there there should be an, a big range of options for how it'll work for their the child and how it'll work for the family and what would be best for that individual. And we don't have to kind of have it where one decision is somewhat disastrous and the other is. And, you know, to her credit, you know, later in the novel, there's a baby and they have a conversation about whether to implant it. But for me, it was just really damaging to read that, you know, the one child who has it you know, has all these kind of fundamental problems. And I just didn't think we needed to do that. You know, I, I wouldn't, I would never do that to the signing deaf child I portrayed, um, even though it's a decision factor that, you know, we didn't make in our family. I, but you know what, you know, by reading it, it stimulated me to the next thing. And now I'm working on something that, you know, I'm trying to um, create a novel where like all the points of views, however, sort of sound or limited um, are all represented so that a reader can just sit amid the swirl of of all the kind of concepts that go around because on all sides of the debate, there are somewhat sound arguments and really kind of uh, not very sound <laughs> arguments and um, it's it's just kind of interesting I think it would be great because it's like a little bit of a window into our political world more generally and all the fractiousness and divide that we're dealing with in our in our general world and um, so I hope I can do it. it it we'll see well I think that's it's interesting that you mentioned that book and and thinking of just as being someone who doesn't have a, a personal connection to that world, is that sometimes when you read a book like that, that's the impression you walk away from because you don't know the other side. And so you think, oh, well, these cochlear implants, they're they're problematic and you know, blah, blah. Um, so I think it's great that you're gonna write something that will uh, show both sides of people who are 
folks in the community who have kids or who have a personal experience with it um, can come away not feeling uh, negative about their choices, but someone who also who's with uh, not in the community can sit, can see the different sides in a more balanced view. And I mean, one thing that's interesting about it too is in every other area of the world, like we have technology that I'm sure the first pacemakers weren't ideal. I'm sure the beginning of time, you know, but now they're saving lives all the time. You know what I mean? Or there's a lot of things that start off with some issues and then turn out to be, you know, very helpful and very successful. But we don't write about how the failed, the person with the failed pacemaker, <laughs> you know, whatever. I mean, in terms of highlighting an issue, you know, um, it's just it, it's just interesting to me that in that community, whenever there's been any hiccup on one side or the other, that everyone pounces on on that. Whereas everything's evolving for both, you know, sort of communities, and and maybe they're even integrating more now, et cetera. And it's like, I don't know why can't we represent them you know, for where we are now and, uh, you know, whatever. I don't know. It's just a, I guess it's a personal pet peeve. <laughs> okay. Well, I can't wait to read your, your next book. And the fact I was going to ask you about that next, uh, is this a book that you're actually already starting to write or is it just you're working on the ideas? I mean, I'm finding because I haven't, you know, the novel just came out once we were home just, you know, last week that it's pretty distracting, but I am, um, I'm getting some words down and I'm trying to take walks and just think carefully and, you know, just let some ideas swirl. So it's kind of a combination. It's not going so quickly right now, but um, I'm happy when I get anything down, uh, you know, in on, on the, on the screen. So, or on the paper. And um, so it'll, it'll come along, but probably I'll need to be done with my book tour before I really settle down. Yeah. Okay. I can understand that. What about your uh, reading right now? Are you able to read anything right now? Or are you just too busy with promoting the new book? Um, no, I just read a beautiful book um, called Beyond That the Sea by Laura Spence Ash. And um, I read it before knowing that we're going to do a joint uh, event together in Newton, Massachusetts. I'm so excited to be able to talk to her, but that was a really beautiful book. I listened to Ma May on audio. Have you read Ma May? No. Oh, I loved it. Um, I wish I had books here with their with the. Um, I know authors. that helps, doesn't it? I know. Jennifer Rosner, thank you so much for coming on Read More to talk about your work. I have really enjoyed chatting with you. Me too. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Please go to our website, readmorepodcast.com to find out how to win a free copy of Once We Were Home. You can also help Jennifer and the show by buying her book on our site. Please follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together when our guest will be Natalia Sylvester. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.